0: of Mint Press News. We're an independent online news service dedicated to watchdog journalism that holds the powerful to account, exposing the money interests that influence policies right here at home and abroad, while we go behind the headlines to bring you stories the corporate mainstream media doesn't want you to hear. I'm your host, Manar
1: Mohawish, founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News. And I'm your co-host, Whitney Webb, and together we will not only discuss and analyze the biggest stories that the government and their media lapdogs once swept under the rug, but also interview dissenting voices, independent researchers, and journalists who the establishment would rather silence. Today we are joined by Kevin Gostola, managing editor of the independent news site Shadowproof, who has spent the last week in London covering the extradition hearings of WikiLeaks founder and former editor-in-chief Julian Assange. Assange, who was forced to sit in a glass enclosure far from his defense team during last week's hearings, faces extradition to the United States for alleged violations of the Espionage Act. The next hearing in the case is set to resume on May 18th. Assange stands accused of 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act, an archaic law that dates back to World War I and has increasingly been used to target whistleblowers in the United States. He also faces one count of violating a computer crime law that the U.S. government asserts is also a charge of espionage. If convicted on all counts, if extradited, Assange would face 175 years in a U.S. prison.
0: Now, for the past decade, WikiLeaks has helped expose a litany of war crimes and corruption by the political class supported by both the Republican and Democratic parties, making Assange a target of the deep state and war profiteering establishment. This includes publishing the Vault 7 leaks, which exposed the CIA's surveillance and intelligence capabilities worldwide, the State Department Cable's highlighting the war agendas under Hillary Clinton uh, during her time in the State Department to benefit Israel and the DNC emails, revealing how the Hillary Clinton campaign colluded with the DNC to smear and undercut Bernie Sanders and his supporters in the 2016 election, and much more. And in 2007, WikiLeaks published documents leaked by Army Private Chelsea Manning that detailed evidence of American war crimes that took place during the war in Iraq. After previously being sentenced to 35 years in prison and spending months in solitary confinement, Manning was re to 18 months in prison last year for refusing to testify against Assange. Now, in targeting a publisher of journalistic information that acts as a watchdog to those in power and works in the interest of the public, Rather than those who committed the crimes, human rights organizations like Amnesty International have warned that this is a grave attack on press freedoms and the charges against Assange should be dropped. Kevin joins us now from London to discuss the recent hearings and the details of Assange's situation and the case against him. Now, thank you for joining us today, Kevin. First, could you give our listeners an overview of the hearings and why everyone who values independent journalism and free speech should not only be paying attention, but also very concerned about its outcome?
2: Yeah, and thanks for having me on the show. The reason why this case is so crucial for people to pay attention is because... The United States is essentially saying that it can impose its secrecy laws against someone who is not a U.S. citizen. Julian Assange is an Australian, and this opens a can of worms. This sets a precedent, potentially, if the U.S. government is successful, where I argue that other governments are going to believe they have permission to pursue these kinds of prosecutions against global correspondents, maybe their war correspondents, uh, You could go after anyone who's involved in journalism trying to pursue and force the disclosure of information to bring transparency to corrupt governments around the world in the same way that Julian Assange did through WikiLeaks, and that this would put everything on this path where you could you could see you know you could see israel doing this you could see saudi arabia do maybe turkey um even his home country australia might do it they don't they they've particularly you've seen that their laws domestically have trended towards protecting secrecy in the last three or four last several years here but I, i believe that that's one aspect that needs to be focused upon but then also there is The crucial element of targeting a journalist, of criminalizing a person for the publication of information and believing that the prosecutors think that they're getting around these fundamental issues because they're really talking about Julian Assange putting lives at risk and they claim We've got these specific documents. We're not charging all the documents. We just have a few cables, and we have some particular war logs, and they mention these during the hearing, and for the most part, these are documents that are from the Iraq and Afghanistan war zones, and then we see that these are cables they're mentioning from Syria, and then at least one cable or two from China. And so these are obviously countries in which the United States views these governments as adversaries, as, as people who uh, the foreign policy is intended to combat. And, and and that's probably why they are selecting these documents to charge them in the case. But, um, you know, the crucial thing here is that Julian Assange is a journalist. He's a member of uh, two two unions. He's a member of a trade union in Australia. He's a member of an international journalist's union as well. And uh, usually to do that, you have to be a dues-paying member. Uh, So for us to be dragged into these constant conversations about whether or not Julian Assange is a journalist or not, there, there simply is no merit to that discussion. But then secondly, The act of what he did was journalism, and that is what the US government is targeting. And so it's up to people who are involved in journalism to recognize that we need to, A, cover this, we need to talk about it, we need to pay attention when there are extradition proceedings and when there are parts of this unfolding before our very eyes, but then also that we need to realize what happens if Julian Assange is brought to trial and if the U.S. has any success with this, that this means I, I actually divide it up because I know that there are ways in which independent journalists get treated as second class citizens. I mean, you yourselves, uh, both of you have it, your own experiences and I have mine. And and so I believe that if Julian Assange is successful, that it's people like me who work with sensitive documents, if I was working with sensitive documents, but then other people who work with sensitive documents and obtain information or maybe connect with whistleblowers, that they would be in trouble first. And then if the government was successful in making an example out of them, then uh, it's actually the people who we tend to argue with a lot. It's actually the The editors and these journalists that are part of these corporate or establishment media institutions that then fundamentally have to worry, and at that point it would probably be too late. If there's a book, if there's a case on the books where Julian Assange was successfully convicted, if an independent journalist was successfully convicted because they didn't have an institution to give them financial or any sort of legal support that would make it possible to fight back against the government. Well, then those are all going to be there, and there are going to be ways in which the U.S. government can turn on, uh, let's say, a New York Times or uh, CNN, for example.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought that up, because during last week's hearings, the prosecution uh, used statements from five mainstream corporate media outlets, including the New York Times and also The Guardian and and Der Spiegel, and I I believe a few others, um, that had actually previously worked with WikiLeaks, but the prosecution used statements from those outlets to bolster its case against Assange even though he, as you said, is being targeted precisely for his journalistic and publishing work. So what do you make of this apparent about-face on the part of these media outlets, and what role has the mainstream media played in the long-standing efforts to discredit Assange as both a person and a journalist?
2: what What those statements are that you are referring to, they go back to the time when WikiLeaks was working as a media partner with the New York Times and The Guardian and Der Spiegel. Uh, Der Spiegel always remained a little bit less combative, and Der Spiegel's from Germany. And then uh, there may be some other media organizations that I'm missing. There There was a larger coalition that objected to how the diplomatic cables ultimately came to be published in their entirety online. And there's a bit of a lie that the media has told about WikiLeaks, which the defense rebutted entirely during their argument in the extradition proceedings last week, which was to go through and give people the timeline of events of something called password gate where David Lee, who was with the Guardian and Luke Harding, who is still with the Guardian, published a book. and in this uh, the, in their book, As the subtitle of one of the chapters in the book, they published the password for an encrypted cache of documents that, if opened, would unleash all of the cables that had been worked with and people within WikiLeaks and at these media organizations had done a lot to carefully manage these documents so that people who were named in them did not face any kinds of serious repercussions so that their lives were not endangered. Uh, They uh, were careful about making sure that what they put out there was censored to a degree so that we just got the information that was essential and we didn't get um, and there was no exposure of anyone who might be vulnerable. And then What happened is because there were organizations, particularly one media organization in Germany, that started to make a connection that there was this password in the book and then there's this file online and we could connect the two. And then it opened and you could get in there. And there was – and again, all of these – this is over 250,000 diplomatic cables and all of them are – what they were like when Chelsea Manning first saw them when she opened the database. And there wasn't anything that had been done with them to prepare them uh, that journalists would typically do when working with sensitive information of this magnitude. And so that's on David Lee and that's on Luke Harding. And because those files were all widely available on the internet and because WikiLeaks went ahead and decided to take control of everything and say, these are gonna be out here anyways we might as well get them on our site and get people to read everything here and we might as well not have people going to darker corners of the web where things are happening that are, are are shady and people might get in trouble so let's keep people here at least because we know like people who go aren't going to get into any sort of trouble as as far as like cyber vulnerability i mean like i guess what i'm saying is where these cables were in their uncensored forms were parts of the internet where you, know, you might go to that site and maybe you, know, you yourself are vulnerable to being hacked by people who want to get your information. And so why don't you just come to WikiLeaks? We can present this information and we can also get them out to the wider public and we can also do work proactively to try to figure out who these people are and keep them from being hurt. And there's actually a scene in the documentary Risk that was done by Laura Poitras that shows Sarah Harrison of WikiLeaks contacting the State Department to say, we need to speak to Hillary Clinton. She needs to know right now that all of these cables are going to be dumped out onto the internet and people are going to be able to access them. And she has a problem on their hands. And uh, they say, we want to help you. And they put it like this. You know, We don't have a problem. You have a problem. And we really want to try to help you to figure this out so that we can prevent bad things from happening to these people. Uh, they also contacted the UN because they knew that there was a program that the UN had to try to help people who were in vulnerable situations who might be you know, activists or dissidents that needed to be protected. And so uh, that's one aspect of all of this where the media has been completely disingenuous about the way that they talk about WikiLeaks and their recklessness. And it was a focus of the proceedings and I'd say that this animosity, this, this way that the New York Times particularly has had an attitude towards WikiLeaks that it's not a partner, it's a source, we just got the cables from them, or we just got the war logs from them, they're not the same as us, we don't see them as a partner, is uh, very obnoxious, but it also doesn't really do anything in t- for the New York Times. I mean, all, all it does in showing their contempt is it just demonstrates the inability of people who run the institution to see how this case could be something that affects them as well. I mean, they're not insulated from this as what is is the main point that runs through any kind of commentary that is given. People need to know that no matter the hubris among journalists in the U.S. media, no matter how much they hate Julian Assange. It's not going to matter if the U.S. Justice Department decides there's a reason why they want to come after and prosecute them.
0: And I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, because that leads me to my next question to discuss what is actually happening at these hearings. I mean, could you give us a quick overview of the prosecution's main arguments and how the defense has responded thus far?
2: So as I understand it, it's actually the defense that has the burden to show that Julian Assange should not be extradited to the United States. So a lot of what we're hearing is the defense presenting what they say are abuses of process in the way that the extradition request was put together and in the way that the indictment is drafted. But essentially what we heard from the prosecution is that technically speaking, they believe none of the arguments that the defense are saying have merit and all of this is legitimate and the judge should sign off on it. Her name is Vanessa Baratzer. She's a magistrate court judge in the UK. And so she should sign off on this. Because technically speaking, the law in the United Kingdom, and there's a domestic law, uh, the law in the United Kingdom uh, does not cover something called the political offense exception. And so because of that – and I'll go back and explain what that is, but I just want to finish with the prosecutor's argument – the political offense exception is not – in the uk domestic law and so because domestic law is supposed to be how you make your decision on whether to extradite julian assaj then you should accept all of what's in the indictment and everything we're saying and approve his extradition uh, now of course the issue here is that the political offense exception is something that is a universal norm in treaties and even though many, many people may not know it exists, it would probably make a lot of sense to people once they understand what it is, because essentially it's to protect people who are accused of espionage, treason, or sedition, and or involved in political struggle and accused of crimes. And let's say they flee and a state power decides to use their, use a treaty to extradite them back to the country and put them on trial for what would be an obvious political prosecution, then this is supposed to be a kind of protection to say, well, no, what you want to do is prosecute this person for a political offense, and it's not something that we recognize as a crime in this country. You're talking about an alleged crime against the state. And what we're talking about with Julian Assange and the U.S. is the U.S. accusing him of doing things contrary to u.s interests so that's a political offense now where this gets i'm not going to go into the weeds but where this gets murky is the fact that the treaty that the united states and the united kingdom have between each other has a section that speaks to protections around this political offense exception but what the prosecutors are saying is that the U.K. passed a law where this section was taken out completely and it did not survive being passed. So they want her to just look to the domestic law, ignore the treaty, disregard international law, disregard the fact that the United Nations put puts a political offense exception in U.N. model treaties. They include it in the Interpol Treaties. All these countries, anytime you're considering drafting an extradition treaty, people have typically included this political offense exception. And that has even survived this global war on terrorism. Uh, So, you know, one thing that was brought out that I learned from following these proceedings is that the United States was going around after the 9-11 attacks and was asking countries like the U.K., to do away with the political offense exception so that they would have an easier time of extraditing people who were accused of terrorism-related offenses to the United States. And so that's probably the most clear explanation for why it's not in the UK domestic law anymore. And so we could say, unfortunately, Julian Assange may wind up being collateral damage because of this war on terrorism that the U.S. has pursued, that they're going to be able to make a case before this judge to extradite him because of the way in which they've pushed this change to extradition law. Uh, and, and so, so that's really what we've seen laid out by the prosecution.
1: So while the hearing was ongoing, um, Assange was kept isolated in this bulletproof glass box and totally separated from his legal team. Even though his legal uh, legal team requested that Assange be able to sit with them, the judge reclined this request. Can you discuss the significance of Assange's isolation during these uh, proceedings as well as how this affects his
2: defense? Yeah, so this would probably be stunning to any American because... It's universally accepted that even in the worst of circumstances, even when you have a lot of abuse happening, even when a person who's accused, let's say a whistleblower, and they're going through humiliation, they still get to sit with their attorneys. It's not like we do what I saw in the UK. And essentially you have in the United Kingdom this development about 40 years ago, where they adopted this secure dock, and what it looks like is a glass box in the back of the courtroom where the defendant is made to sit all alone, totally isolated, removed from proceedings. If there are juries, you have to fundamentally ask what this means for the right of the accused to have a presumption of innocence, because all the people— in a jury will constantly see this person in this box and think, yeah, they might have done something wrong. They probably deserve to be in this box. And then also it removes you as a defendant from being able to participate in your defense. You can't communicate a lot with your legal team. So if you're sitting at the table with your defense attorneys, as proceedings unfold, you can ask questions of your attorney to try to follow along, help you understand some of the legal issues, what is going on. And so you might do that. If you have something that you want to raise with your attorney, you hear them ask a question, or you hear a witness provide some testimony and you want to tell your lawyer, oh, I I remember that. It didn't actually work like that. Ask a follow-up question so that you can get deeper and I, I think you're going to trip this witness up. You, you know, Julian Assange might want to, to do that with some of the witnesses. And we have a – coming up in May, June, we're going to have a major three-week evidentiary hearing where witnesses are going to be called to the stand. And it might be good if Assange could be at a table with his lawyers consulting along that process because he's going to know a lot of these people. But you're not allowed to do that, not with the security procedure that is imposed – at this courtroom. And the courthouse is an anti terrorism courthouse. It's in Woolwich, London, and it's adjacent to the Belmarsh prison where Julian Assange is detained. And Belmarsh has a reputation as a kind of British Guantanamo because it's where a lot of prisoners are that have been accused of terrorism related offenses. That's, that's as I basically understand it. And so what you see in this courtroom is a kind of, you know, war on terror kind of way of managing defendants. This this idea that the people in the box might pose a threat, so we have them there. They might try to flee, so we have them there. Or they could also claim that they're there because we want to stop people from attacking defendants, so it's for their own protection. But there's just, if you look at the research that has been done the work done by organizations like there's a group called justice in the uk that has spoken out about the way in which using these glass boxes undermines the rights of people and there's not even a evidence there that they're actually stopping violence or that they're stopping flee uh, like escape attempts there's just no data to back up having these glass boxes it's it, it's a part of the culture of prosecuting people in the UK, but it's without basis. There's no law in the United Kingdom for having this box. It's a policy decision. So at any moment, somebody could say, we want to get rid of these, and they could do that, and nobody would stop them because it's an elected thing. It's something they just chose to do in these courthouses. And it's impractical. It's terribly impractical because the defendant is behind the defense team, and if he wants to get their attention, well, the defense team can't see Julian Assange. So the judge is the one that stops proceedings and says, do you need something, Julian? And then the defense turns around and everything comes to a halt and it stops. And then slowly it starts back up again. And or there might be a point of tension where Julian Assange objects to what is happening and it's impossible to, if this is going to happen when we have this three-week proceeding with witnesses, it's going to be impossible for us to get into a flow. Like For attorneys, it's, it's not good for attorneys because a lot of attorneys who work have a method for how they cross-examine witnesses, and they there's a flow to piecing together, and they want the judge to be able to see this without disruption. But if this is happening with the glass box, they're, they, then they can't ever get to what they want in order to mold and impact the mind of the judge to try and move her to their side to see what they're trying to present. And unfortunately, she's willing to let this three-week hearing become a six-week hearing. She's willing to let the court expend double the amount of resources Waste more time and money and all kinds of everything just so that she can keep him in this glass box, because frankly, what it comes down to is she's made this choice that she is not going to be pushed around by Julian Assange and have him convince her that she what what this is what this is is wrong, because this is how other cases have unfolded in the UK. So why should he get to be an exception to this standard that has been used in this courthouse and what was really the exclamation point on this abuse was seeing the prosecutor who is pushing for all of this who of course is the one that wants to bring julian assange to the united states so that he can be put on trial i mean that's what he's there to deliver and yet he's saying we're neutral we do not care if julian assange sits with his lawyers, and yet the judge doesn't care. The judge is insistent that this cruelty continue.
0: And speaking of cruelty and the treatment that many whistleblowers face that can sometimes be described, you know, worse than how uh, murderers are treated, uh, Chelsea Manning, despite intense pressure, has refused to testify against Assange, which has led to her imprisonment for nearly a year and her accrual of of over um, $230,000 in fines. Yet it was recently revealed that her refusal to testify as part of the U.S. case against Assange has made it very difficult for prosecutors in both the U.S. and the U.K. to make their case against the WikiLeaks founder. Can you give our listeners an overview of Chelsea Manning's resistance and what what has it meant for Assange's case?
2: Chelsea Manning's resistance has been absolutely crucial, I believe. I, I wrote about this just highlighting this contribution that she's made to the defense, because what we have from Chelsea Manning is, and this is how the defense described it, the best chronology of events as they unfolded between her and WikiLeaks. And what happened is she gave a statement in military court In February 2013, when she pled guilty to some offenses, she was able to put on the record many details. Why she selected documents, why she disclosed the collateral murder video, as WikiLeaks called it, why she released the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs, why she released the U.S. state embassy cables, why she released the Guantanamo detainee files, why she released an Iraq rules of engagement file to accompany the collateral murder video. And she talked about preparing the documents, how she believed that they were sensitive or not sensitive, how she believed she was putting national security at risk or wasn't putting national security at risk, why she picked WikiLeaks, how she tried to go to the New York Times or the Washington Post. And so all of this information there, because they haven't been able to get her to testify before the grand jury, they aren't able to impeach her. They're not able to challenge her timeline. They're not able to say to her, well, no, we have this evidence. So can you, can you tell us again what happened on this date? They're not able to stumble, get, get her to stumble over this. And without getting her to trip up over what she says happened, this is accepted as the reality. This is accepted as the truth of what happened with Chelsea Manning and WikiLeaks and that truth does not, is not compatible with the contrived conspiracy theory that the United States government is putting forward involving Julian Assange, because what they want all of the world to believe is that Julian Assange is not a journalist. He's a hacker. He's somebody who recruited Chelsea Manning, turned her into an insider and spy, and she went about working on his behalf. And she knew what documents to disclose, because if you listen to the prosecutors, there was a list on WikiLeaks' website called the Most Wanted Leaks List, and it was up and promoted around by WikiLeaks in 2009, and it had several documents, and this was what Chelsea Manning could select and she could disclose. And this is supposed to be the prosecution's evidence that WikiLeaks is really and truly what... Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has called a non-state hostile intelligence agency that is aligned against the United States government. It's not a media organization to this Trump administration. They treat it as this thing that is hostile to the U.S. But with Chelsea Manning's statement, we can undermine all of these allegations that are largely without basis. Because what we're talking about are documents that don't even appear on the most wanted leaks list. What we're talking about also shows that Chelsea Manning was going to the Washington Post and the New York Times. So if she really was recruited by Julian Assange, then why is she going to other media outlets before finally sending her material to WikiLeaks. So a lot of this doesn't make sense if we have Chelsea Manning's statement and if they haven't been able to discredit Chelsea Manning's statement. There's also an aspect where they accused Assange of conspiracy to commit commit a computer crime and to help her uh, turn herself into some anonymous person who could go about the networks and steal these documents without detection. Well, we heard evidence this past week that these databases that the databases we're talking about didn't have password logins. So there's no reason why she would have been talking about password cracking for things like these these documents that she's known to have disclosed. The password cracking conversation we actually learned has to do with her own experience as a soldier in the intelligence facility where she worked. And most of her fellow soldiers, including herself, wanted to load unauthorized software, unauthorized movies, unauthorized music on the military computers. And the way they would do it without detection is they would password, they would do password cracking in order to get that material on without detection. And in fact, Chelsea had her own superior ask her for help with installing a software uh, so that. That that she could do this and not get in trouble for it, and Chelsea helped her, and so she had this interest in password cracking. She's very into this kind of computer uh, science kind of thing. She's 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 very uh, smart about all of this, and and she raised this question with Julian Assange allegedly over the chats about de uh, decrypting hash values, and I don't want to get into this and bore you with all of the 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 details related to those specifically, but what we learned from the defense is that this probably has more to do with her own professional interest in trying to help people use computers and that she actually talked about wanting to start a password cracking business while she was in the military and I don't know. How you make that into a thing where you could be profitable. But this has nothing to do with trying to steal secrets from the US government. This is just somebody who is smart with computers and knew that Julian Assange had a history as a hacker and decided to ask him about this because she could maybe get something beneficial to her while she was in the military.
1: So uh, moving on to a different point, um, some writers have pointed out that the UK's behavior regarding other extraditions, including highly politicized extraditions, um, reveal the extreme stance taken by both the UK and the US with respect to Assange. And one often cited example is how the UK behaved regarding their refusal to extradite uh, the former military dictator of Chile, um, Augusto Pinochet. So what are your thoughts on these past precedents and what do they reveal to you about the case against Assange?
2: That's absolutely right. And there is there is a case that's unfolding right now parallel to this Julian Assange case. And it involves, as I understand it, uh, this 16-year-old that was killed on a motorcycle by someone who— I believe was affiliated with GCHQ and and that this woman fled to the United States and the U.S. government is reluctant to allow her to be extradited back to the U.K. And because this involves what is seems to me clearly manslaughter where someone was killed, uh, there are people here in the U.K. who are actually angry. They, I had a, a, a driver, um, my Uber driver, he went off on a rant when I told him I was here to cover the Julian Assange proceedings. And he said to me that he did not think that he could have faith in the UK justice system anymore if it wants to allow a journalist to be extradited to the US, but yet they're not going to push hard to get this woman back to the UK who's responsible for killing uh, someone in this motorcycle accident. And the fact that the intelligence services are covering up what happened or or at least trying to conceal and protect her from prosecution, it, it speaks a lot about, it says a lot about the UK justice system.
0: And Kevin, we just have time for one more question. Uh, we have about five minutes left, but um, if Assange is extradited, what consequences do you foresee not just for journalism, but for free speech and the public's right to know in the U.S. and abroad? I mean, this is uh, the core of the whole um, trial against Assange.
2: It is at the core. And and I got into some of it in the beginning of our discussion. And, and I think that another aspect beyond being Charged under secrecy laws and not being an American is that they want to deny Julian Assange First Amendment rights. And it's part of the bizarre way in which they are bringing this prosecution. As much as I loathe and despise the way in which President Barack Obama waged this war on whistleblowers and cracked down on leaks to an extent, that no other prior president had ever done in the history of the United States, his Justice Department did go up to the line, and then it backed away, and it did not indict Julian Assange. And that's an objective fact, regardless of how we view President Barack Obama's administration. And Donald Trump's administration made a different choice. He made a choice because Attorney General Jeff Sessions had such a vehement hatred for these people who have no respect for the sanctity of state secrets. So we need to show them that we're serious and we need to bring more cases against them. So he had the Justice Department reopen this case that had lied, laid dormant for multiple years because Julian Assange was in the embassy for a total of seven years. And he had yet to be indicted by the United States government officially. And so it took Donald Trump and it took Donald Trump completely hating leakers who speak out against his administration. We've heard him speak very grotesquely about wanting to essentially do public hangings of people who leak against his administration. And so this is a highly political case and he's chosen to go after Assange and the way that they're doing this denies Him his First Amendment rights. So they're they're trying to, but it doesn't make any sense because if you're prosecuted under the Espionage Act, which is a U.S. law, then you should get the rights that anyone would have who is prosecuted under a U.S. law. And with those rights, you know, you know, with that, you know, you get Fourth Amendment rights, you get Fifth Amendment rights. I think you get First Amendment rights. And so, they want to deny those protections to him. And I don't think that they can actually argue this and win because it's not coherent. Uh, and, And the thing that I'll end on here as we wrap is there was a huge precedent that was said. There's an important case and outcome last year in 2019. And it all is because the Democratic National Committee in their minds, believe that Julian Assange was part of alleged Russian interference in the election when they published the Clinton campaign or the DNC emails particularly. And so they sued WikiLeaks along with the Russian Federation and the Trump administration. And a judge issued a ruling that said they published hacked materials. It's protected by the First Amendment. And, they, and this judge did not treat WikiLeaks as a non-state hostile intelligence agency. He recognized that what they were doing was journalism. And that is in a federal court. That is something that a U.S. prosecutor has to contend with going forward. And so I think it's not a guarantee that some of these hurdles are going to be overcome by U.S. prosecutors. But I also know the way in which The espionage act is prosecuted against whistleblowers it will also be prosecuted that way if julian assange is successfully brought to trial and i'll end with saying i don't believe we want to see what it would look like if a journalist is brought to trial under the espionage act because that may be something that we can't turn around that might be something where we're stunned to see how defenseless a person is in that situation and how they can't actually stop the US government from setting a precedent that will do a lot of damage to global press freedom.
0: Absolutely and you know Whitney specifically has covered has been covering WikiLeaks and their leaks and the precedent that all of this sets in targeting Assange and you know she's done a really fabulous job so everybody should be following her work and also kevin's work and his coverage of the assange hearings um kevin thank you so much for joining us today we will continue to follow your coverage and that's a wrap for today's midcast podcast this program is 100 percent listener supported Um, you can join the hundreds of financial sponsors who make this show possible by becoming a member on our patreon page we'll see you next week thanks guys